This is Keys to the City with Anthony Weiner. Welcome to episode two of Keys to the City, a podcast about the problems facing New York City and the enduring power of ideas. I'm Anthony Weiner. From existential threats to pet peeves, each week together we'll resist the temptation to curse the darkness. Instead, we'll try to light a candle by bringing to light things that have worked before or new ways to get things done. And this week, the conversation turns to kind of a meta issue in government, and that is how we do our budget. This week, or last week, the New York City Council and mayor shook hands and approved a $101 billion city budget. If that sounds like a lot of money, it's because it is. And let's face it, running New York City is expensive business. But I got to thinking at the time that I was writing Keys to the City about why it is that some things become government business and government programs and how they sometimes stay year by year, whether or not we know they work or not. Very rarely does a mayor cut a ribbon and say, I am announcing today that I am ending the program behind this ribbon. And I started thinking about this at the time when a guy named Jack Welsh, he was the CEO of General Electric, and he wrote a book. It was a while ago now. I think it was in the early 2000s. And he talked about, it was one of the first books of business leaders about how to run your organization better. And he had a controversial, but at the time, kind of in vogue suggestion. What he did at GE, and this is when GE was a sprawling business, not as trimmed down as it is today. They were in everything from insurance to engines to air conditioners to all kinds of different products. And what he said to his division managers, to his branch managers, is that every year, He wanted to rank his employees from the most productive, from the most contributing the most, to the least. And then he would then say, I want you to fire the bottom 10% every year, something like 100,000 people. It was brutal, and it's something that I don't believe anyone should be trying to emulate. But I started to think a little bit about how a similar model might work in government. Now, I don't believe we should fire the least productive people. But Idea 41 in my idea book, Keys to the City, suggests that every year, every department head, every agent head, take the things that they do, the functions that they follow, and they rank them in terms of the most efficient, the most productive, to the least. And then at the end of the year, that's right eliminate the things that we just aren't doing well. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't spend the money or even that we don't employ the people that we do. It just means that we redirect it to some place that makes more sense. I mean, there is a version of this, just to give you an idea on, on why this is complicated in a city like New York, and we're going to have a guest who's going to talk about this as well. There's 325,000 employees in the city of New York that work for the city. It's about 50 agencies and departments when you write them all down, and I tried to do that. And the budget's enormous. Even just the capital plan where we say, all right, we're going to build a a piece of play equipment at a park or an ice skating rink or we're going to build a building for a new school, that capital plan is $93 billion over the course of the next five years. 
And the idea would be that, you know, look, if we take some things and we just say they're no longer things that we're doing particularly well anymore, in a $101 billion budget, just moving around a small amount of money could wind up getting big things. I'll give you some examples. If you just moved $10 million, that can buy 103 school psychologists with that money. If you found $10 million that wasn't being efficient somewhere else, that's 58 additional police officers that we'd be able to hire for a year. If you find an inefficiency of $10 million, that's 1,340 child care vouchers for parents who are less able to hire child care can go hire it so they can get into the workforce. Or if you just are interested in getting the dollars and saving them, just $10 million of savings provides $98.40 to every senior, every person with disabilities, every veteran currently receiving that tax exemption. It gets them another $98. So the point I'm making is that if we can find efficiencies in government and just move things around every year, that we would be able to make some progress in other ways. And I guess the idea of this suggestion is that it is very easy to add a program and very difficult to uproot it. But it's not difficult to uproot it because we don't agree that it should go. I w will tell you this. If we have a program that everyone agrees is not working well or wasteful, liberals and conservatives alike don't like waste. Left and right don't like waste. Old and young, no one likes a wasteful program. And then we can have the conversation, okay, do we want to end that program or do we want to just move those resources to somewhere else that's doing things way more efficiently? But there's another benefit of Idea 41. It gets managers and city bureaucrats thinking the way we as taxpayers want them to. We don't want them thinking that their job is only to mine the store. We want them to think about how to make the store better for all New Yorkers. And when we come back from the break, we're going to have a guest who's going to talk about this idea from a real position of expertise. So stick with us and thank you for being here on Keesla City. We'll see you after the break. So welcome back. And before the break on Keys to the City, I laid out my idea. I said sometimes they would be big, sometimes they would be small. This is kind of a little bit of a style question, the one about eliminating the bottom 5% of waste by getting every agency head to kind of think through what works and what doesn't. But we're going to bring in someone now, as I said, you know, the parts that I do are kind of spitballing, but we like to bring in someone who's a real expert. And today we're lucky to have a welcome to the show, Nicole Jolinas. Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, editor at the City Journal, columnist at the New York Post, and the author of After the Fall, Saving Capitalism from Wall Street in Washington. So welcome, Nicole. So you heard what I had to say. Basically, I think this is a matter of helping people in government just to focus on the idea. If something doesn't work, you stop doing it. But you know, you probably know more about budgets than I ever will. Start off with why things seem to be that budgets always grow. They never seem to go in the other direction. Is that just a function that there's more people, inflation, or is it a political question? Sure. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, it, it, we don't start with zero-based budgeting every year. In other words, the budget that you had last year, whether it was good, bad, made sense, didn't make sense, 
you're essentially stuck with that budget. And then what the city does is add on to that budget, very rarely subtracts anything from that budget. So for example, you take the whole defund the police movement, which is a good example, because you had a powerful, seemingly ascendant progressive caucus that two years ago was quite intent on cutting the police budget. But what do you get when you unpack the police budget? Well, a whole chunk of it goes to pensions and health care benefits for both retired police officers and police officers who are soon to retire. So you immediately you can't touch that entire one third of a chunk of the police budget. Another big chunk of it goes to past debt service for capital projects, you know, building police stations, building infrastructure. So you can't touch that. So what do you have is the part of this that goes to essentially salaries. I mean, when you think about the city government, city government is salaries and benefits and much smaller portion of it for materials and non-labor costs. So when you're thinking about cutting back on the city budget, you're thinking about cutting labor. Very, very difficult to do, even when you have a big part of the city government intent on doing that. You saw, despite the defund rhetoric and despite the modest cut that they made to that 2021 budget, the overtime and the structures of managing the overtime were so baked in there that, you know, you say you're going to cut the police budget, but you have problems at the Columbus Circle statue. You have to protect uh, Christopher Columbus. And so you've got round the clock police protection out there costing us tens of thousands a day. So somehow what we say we are going to do does not translate into what actually happens on the ground. You know, whether you're in favor of that cut or against it, you see how difficult it is just to try to translate this one progressive goal into real action. And you see that, you know, across much less dramatic aspects of the city budget. You know, the mayor, to his credit, did cut the education budget by $215 million because education enrollment is down by 9%. But you're looking at a less than 1% cut to the city education budget. It was very, very difficult to achieve. Same thing with the mayor. You know, his instinct was the corrections department is failing. Let's add more corrections officers. It's actually good that the city council pushed back on that and said, no, you can't add any more corrections officers. So the defund movement, it has its benefits sometimes for us fiscal conservatives. Well, but putting aside the notion that most of these agencies, look, there are 325,000 some odd employees of the city, that most of what budgets are, are human beings getting paid to do yep. their job. That doesn't change the, the analysis, though, that you can take the functions of government and say, okay, this is a function that we are not doing very well. I mean, I'm sure there was a time that we had elements in the budget that were focused around the idea of how you're gonna, how you're gonna get rid of the ash from the coal burners in the different apartment buildings. Now we don't have that. I'm sure that there were times when we, you know, had to figure out how to maintain trolley tracks, and now you don't have to do that. You know, I guess what I'm proposing is. Let's take the police department as an example. If we say that we have an increase in the number of emotionally disturbed people on the platforms or on the trains that are causing a havoc and that cops fundamentally don't particularly handle EDPs very well, that's not the best first line of defense. Well, maybe we should take the agency of the NYPD and say, look, 
One of the things we're not doing very well is we have a unit that deals with EDP, emotionally disturbed people. Let's figure out if we're doing that as well as possible. And I'm not, maybe we keep that same 5% and we move it elsewhere in the budget and say, you know what, never mind, cut. Let me, maybe even we keep the same officers, although the NYPD is kind of a unique, kind of quasi paramilitary, specially trained. If we take a different agency for, let's say the sanitation department, since I started talking about that, let's assume we decide for a moment that, you know what, our problem is not the cur- the streets sweeping so much, that the streets are kind of, but the curbs themselves, the sidewalks. Let's get guys off the trucks to start pushing brooms like they did in the 1960s and 1950s. I guess what I'm suggesting is that if we just look in terms of the numbers of how you get rid of, say, $10 million suddenly, that the better way to look at it is to say to every agency, you know what? What aren't you doing particularly well? And the thing that I'd like to, to hear your thoughts on is, we don't really have discussions. We don't cut ribbons on programs that we end because they haven't done well. Yet, Democrats and Republicans, liberal and conservatives, nobody likes waste. No one likes waste. And that's the puzzling thing to me is why hasn't anyone really made reform? And not, no, no one's done it. But why hasn't any mayor said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start announcing each month the things that we're going to be doing less of and moving because we're not doing it very well. We have the mayor's manager report, but besides you and me, who reads it? Yeah, I mean, what are we not doing very well? A good example is if you walk around Midtown Manhattan, it's just a disaster in so many respects in terms of is there anybody taking a holistic look at if I came from out of town, would I want to be walking down the street? Why is there a dormant construction site with trash all over the place, taking up a whole lane of traffic and nobody's even working there? Uh, you know, why are there uh, counterfeit pocket vendors all over the sidewalks obstructing traffic? So this is something that we're not doing very well. And it is not a matter of the resources that we're putting toward it. We're still picking up the, the litter baskets on the same schedule that we were before COVID. We haven't cut back on any construction inspections or anything else like that. So why not actually go and say, who does this well? Well, European cities do this much, much better. You don't have these issues when you're walking around London, Paris, Berlin. Why not invite a contingent of leaders from these cities and come and walk the streets of New York and actually interact with the employees and say, what is it that's getting lost in the translation here between the money that we spend, the goal of having an attractive midtown to get people back to work, and what are actually the results on the streets. And let's just take a different approach to what's gone wrong here. I appreciate that. Well, before I let you go, I do want to ask you one question, well, question or two about your book, After the Fall, Saving Capitalism from Wall Street and Washington. When did that book come out? Was it 2012? Uh, quite a while ago. I want to say 2010. It was 2010. Right, yeah, it was <laughs> right, right after the financial crisis. Well, let me ask you this. This is a, a puzzling question that I get on my, my radio show, The Middle, that we, that we do every Saturday, that comes up when the callers. There seems to be this notion among conservatives when it comes to problems such as the baby formula shortage, gas prices, Government should just do something, do something, Joe Biden. It seems like a very counter-conservative way of approaching what are problems that are largely 
or at least partially market driven. The baby formula shortage was there's a very there's not a, a great deal that it's a it's a very predictable market. They know exactly how much they need to manufacture. So when there's a glitch, there's a glitch. Prices go up, scarcity ensues. Gas prices, yeah, there's there are definitely policy decisions that have been made around where you can drill. But you know, I hear columnists and I hear conservatives, people who identify as conservatives, say we should just build refineries to deal with the refinery shortage. Is there kind of a losing of the, uh, the central mooring, mooring of conservative thought because it's getting dragged into just the politics of who you want to win or lose? What happened to kind of Ronald Reagan conservatives that said, hey, you know, shit happens in capitalist economies and sometimes it means higher prices and some scarcity. What say you? Yeah, I think a, a, a good part of my book was about how few free markets we have in governing uh, virtually anything important that you do. If you want to buy a house, it's not a free market. Your mortgage is heavily subsidized by the government, unless you're, you know, buying a multi-million-dollar house. Uh, you, you, you want to go to college? It's not a free market. You have government-subsidized loans that are pushing up the price of college because there's no discipline in in universities. I mean, they've just added tens of thousands of people in administration because they know they've got uh, students who can borrow from the federal government to pay for this healthcare. Medicaid, Medicare, massive portions of the healthcare sector, not free market at all. So very, very little that you can do in terms of a big ticket purchase that is actually part of the free market. So you look at something like baby food. This is a highly regulated uh, product. You know, the government essentially sets what has to go in the baby food, make sure that the companies are adhering to these standards. Something like half of the market is paid for through government dollars, through the women, infants, and children. There are labeling program. requirements. So, that are different from place yeah. To place. So this is this is not the point time where the government says. Okay, we regulate this market. We purchase the project, the product on behalf of consumers, but we're going to just step away and say you're on your own. You know, right. go make your own baby food. Go find your baby food. You know, I think they even the most ardent free marketeer would not say, okay, there's no baby food. Let the market sort it out. And you know, I think Biden is belatedly doing the right thing in importing all of this. This, but uh, I, but I guess I'm asking food. a philosophical question about conservatism today, economic conservatism. Conservatism, what it looks like, because I think your book makes this point about how it's become so influenced. And this was in 2010. It's been so influenced by whatever political side, like whoever you think you want to win. I got a great idea. You should have a website that you ask people, are you a capitalist or a socialist? Because now socialism is this hot word. And he says, what well, do you believe we should have Medicare? deliver health care for our seniors? Do you believe that we should have airfares that are, are the competition among airlines? Because it's become, it's almost, you know, to find a true intellectually honest conservative or progressive now, it's really hard to do. We are just really just finding whatever is convenient for us to get the outcome that is predetermined by our political stripes. Am I kind of on the right path here? Yeah, I mean, look at the whole Disney issue, for example. Whether I, one, I read your column about that. It was excellent. Thank you. Whether one agrees that Disney was, was right to speak out against the parental rights and education law, uh, completely misread the situation. You have a corporation that is exercising its supposed right to speak out 
on an issue of concern to its employees. But yet you have the governor of Florida, you know, come down and someone making uh, Chris Christie look like an enlightened person who was not abusing his power at all. Uh, So here is a, a, a situation where the state of Florida and the ascendant figure of the uh, Republican Party was not happy to sit back and say, you know what, maybe we agree with Disney, maybe we don't, but this is a corporation that has managed tens of thousands of employees for 80 years, and so we'll just let them have their opinion and have a difference of opinion here. They were not happy to do that at all. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think there's there's certainly something to that, that I mean, each, and this each is one party... Of the- yeah. subscribes to its principles when it suits them to subscribe. To and this is one of the reasons I found it. I mean, I found it entertaining the same voices on the right who were critical of movements to boycott over, you know, trans rights or boycott, you know, the all-star game because of some law that was passed. These are the same ones that were cheering Ron DeSantis. Listen, I really appreciate your time. Uh, Nicole Jolinas, you you are a great resource. You're a New York institution, and I'm glad that you're contributing so much and glad you join us on Keys to the City. Where can people reach you? Do you have a Twitter handle? Yeah, I'm just Nicole Delinas on Twitter. Really easy to find me there. And at the New York Post, of course, most of the time they run my column on Monday. Terrific. Really great to have you. Like I said, hopefully we'll have you back. There are plenty of these ideas we're going to have that you're going to have wisdom on. And I'm grateful for your contribution today. Thank you, Anthony. Happy to be on. Well, that was an excellent conversation. I have a feeling we're going to want to have Nicole back again. She's one of those all-purpose toolboxes of ideas that are going to come in handy on Keys to the City. So make sure to rejoin us again next week when we'll have another episode, another idea, another big idea or small idea. Maybe it'll be one for me. Maybe it'll be one that I get from all of you. If you'd like to contribute to the ideas here or the questions that you might have, uh, there is an email in the show notes that give you a chance to lob some ideas in and make sure to include your contact information. Maybe I'll put you on the show to explain the idea. And also, if you want to see some of the idea books that I have published called Keys to the City, they're in PDF form also found in the in the show notes above. So join us back next week and also be sure to check out all of the podcasts that are found here on the Red Apple Podcast Network. And if you like what you've been hearing, tell your friends about it, write a rating of it, and uh, we'll see you next week on Keys to the City.